Well, today is Easter, and that means today what we're going to do is we're going to reflect on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And, you know, before this pandemic, I had actually uh, planned on preaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is a very rich chapter on the resurrection. And I was going to preach through on that passage for an entire month, and we were going to spend an entire month looking at the resurrection. And that chapter, it's a very rich chapter because it talks about the resurrection historically, apologetically, theologically, and of course, practically. But as I thought about where we should draw from to reflect on the resurrection uh, today, I thought it would actually be appropriate to look at the death and resurrection of a guy named Lazarus. And sometimes when we think about the resurrection, it can seem like a very high and lofty doctrine. And of course, there is value in studying passages like 1 Corinthians 15. But I felt like during a season of pandemic, I thought we needed a passage that shows us the more human side of life and death. So that we can connect Easter to some of the experiences many people are having today. Now these days, uh, I'm sure as with many of you, every time I open a website, uh, a news website, or even Yahoo, uh, I am confronted with news of death. There's headlines that say we surpassed 100,000 global deaths. There's headlines that say the U.S. now has the most deaths. There's headlines for New York that say that New York has about 2,000 deaths. And every day, people are just keeping count of how many people are dying from this virus. And when you look at death as a statistic or as a number, uh, I actually do think it's a little bit uh, easier to handle emotionally. Uh, the high numbers, of course, are a shock, but these numbers don't come with a face or a story. But then you have these other stories, and you start to read and hear stories about loved ones dying and being unable to breathe or talk or being separated from their loved ones and dying alone. And then the emotional impact of what this virus is doing uh, starts to hit you. That's why I want to look at the story of the death of Lazarus in the Gospel of John, because I think it's a little bit like reading a story about a loved one dying rather than reading a statistic. It connects a face and a family to the experience of death, and therefore it's easier to feel the emotional impact that death has. And I want to look at death within this story. But conversely, for Easter, as we reflect on the resurrection, I don't want us to think about the resurrection as some kind of concept or some kind of doctrine and lose the emotional impact of it. But I want us to understand the resurrection in the context of a story so that we can actually feel, see, and imagine its power, its joy, and its hope. And I do pray that this story helps us to do that today. Now, you oftentimes hear people talk about death and say things like, death is a great equalizer. Death is universal. Everybody will eventually have to face it. And as a statement, it sounds so innocuous. It, it is as if the universality of death is supposed to make us feel better about it. Uh, maybe it makes us think, well, if everyone eventually faces it, then maybe it can't be so bad. But then you encounter it personally in some form or fashion, and you realize it's not innocuous. If you have lost someone that you love, or if you yourself have had a near-death experience, then you know death is powerful and death can shake you to the core. Uh, this week I read a book by a Christian philosopher. Uh, this philosopher's name is Nicholas Wolterstorff. And uh, I read one of his books. It's not one of his philosophical books, but it's a very personal book that he wrote. You see, many years ago, uh, he wrote a book about his experience of grief after he lost his 25-year-old son in a mountain climbing accident. And what I appreciate about his description of grief is that he articulates how the death of his son shook him to the core. 
Uh, he goes so far as to say that his identity, his very identity changed after he lost his son because his pain and sorrow became a part of him. And this change in identity happened also in some very practical ways. So for example, when he would meet someone for the first time and they would just kind of introduce one another and they would ask him how many children he had, at first he wasn't sure how to answer. Should he say he has four children or should he say he has five? You see, if he said he has four children, that wouldn't seem like an honest reflection of his identity and who he was because they would cut out a significant part of his life. If he said five, uh, would he have to explain that one of his kids had died tragically? Does he really want to tell that story and live that story over and over and over again? So he struggled with it. You know, the dynamics and identity of his family life also changed. And during holidays, he said holidays were the toughest. When people would ask, did the whole family get together? He wasn't sure how to answer. In, in a sense, yes, his other four children were with him, but still, it wasn't the whole family because his son was gone. Family was never whole again because it was always missing his son. The presence of his son's absence was always with him. And that's what I mean when I say death shakes us to the core. Now, the story of death for one family is recorded in the Gospel of John. And what makes the story so remarkable is that in the end, this story is not characterized by death, but it's actually characterized by resurrection. In the opening verses of this chapter, we are told that a man from Bethany named Lazarus has fallen ill. Lazarus's sisters are Mary and Martha. And John makes it a point to tell us that Jesus was close to this family because we're told that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when he hears that Lazarus is sick, you would think that Jesus would have rushed back and take the day's journey to be with Lazarus as soon as possible. But for whatever reason, he decides to stay where he was for two days before going to see Lazarus. And during that time, he tells his disciples, Lazarus has fallen asleep, which meant he knew that Lazarus had died. And this brings us to what we read in our passage today. Now, by the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus he had been dead for four days. And the mention of four days, it just emphasizes the point that Lazarus was truly dead. Because in those days, rabbis believed that the soul hovered near the body for three days. And therefore, there was a chance of being resuscitated back to life. If Lazarus had just died when Jesus arrived, perhaps Jesus could have resuscitated him and brought him back to life. You see, after four days, what they're saying is his death was final. So Jesus finds Martha and Mary grieving their brother, and with grace and wisdom, he meets with both sisters separately and responds to their grief in different ways. You see, Martha is known to be the active busy one. And in Luke's gospel, she's the one who is always doing. She's the one who is always serving and doing what's expected of her. Jesus responds to Martha's grief with some words of truth. And he says in verse 23, your brother will rise again, to which Martha responds, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And it's as though Martha is just saying what is expected of a good Jewish woman. It would be like someone saying of a deceased person, they are in a better place. And even though that might not really make you feel better because their absence still pains you, you say very politely, yes, I know they're in a better place. Thank you. But Martha misunderstands what Jesus is getting at here. Jesus is always misunderstood, especially in the Gospel of John. When Jesus says he is going to destroy the temple and raise it in three days, people think he's referring to the physical temple. When Jesus tells Nicodemus, one must be born again, his response is, but how can a man be born again when he is old? 
How does he enter his mother's womb? When Jesus says to the Samaritan woman that he has living water, her response is to say, but you don't have a bucket to draw water with. When Jesus says he is the bread of life and that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, his disciples' response is to be offended by this, a statement like that and say, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And so you see, Jesus, especially in the Gospel of John, is oftentimes misunderstood. And when he says one thing, he actually means something else and something deeper. And these misunderstandings show us that people don't really understand what Jesus is ultimately saying. Their faith is limited because their conception of who Jesus is and what he came to do is still too small at this point. And so Martha thinks Jesus' initial words are simply words of consolation, that they're simply what people customarily say when someone dies. And at this point, she cannot conceive that Jesus can actually bring Lazarus back to life after he has been dead for four days. And so Martha, I don't believe, derives any real comfort, comfort from what Jesus says. But then Jesus says something else to her, and he says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, that's very different than saying there will be a resurrection on the final day. Jesus is saying that the resurrection is more than just a doctrine, more than just a concept, more than even a fact about the future. Rather, he is saying that resurrection and life are found in a person. When you have Jesus, you have resurrection and you have life. Lazarus will be raised to life because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Lazarus will rise again because Jesus himself holds the power to raise him from the dead. Why? Because Jesus himself is God. And to that, Martha, he asked Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe that whoever believes in me won't die but will live? To which Martha responds, yes, Lord, I believe. Then Jesus goes to Mary. And with Mary, he doesn't say anything about the resurrection. He sees her weeping, and he is deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And so what he does, he does something so simple and yet so profound. He weeps. The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. When we grieve, oftentimes I think that's what we need. Uh, we need a person to weep with us. We need someone to be sad with us and to cry with us. And sometimes that's better than mere words of consolation. And so that's what Jesus does. At the same time, if you really think about it, it is strange that Jesus weeps at all. Why? Well, after all, Jesus is not like any of us. At this point, Jesus already knows that he will raise Lazarus from the dead in a very short period of time. And if he has this knowledge, why weep at all? Why not tell Mary Mary, don't be sad. I am going to raise your brother back to life. And I think we find our answer, at least part of the answer in verse 36, when the Jews see Jesus weeping and they say, see how he loved him. Jesus weeps because he loves. You know, grief and love are very connected. And you only grieve when you lose something you love deeply. And that's another thing Nicholas Wolterstorff says in his book. He says he grieves his son unapologetically because he deeply loved his son. And so he says, God's call to love is also an invitation to suffer. If we love much, then we will also suffer much. Lament and love are intimate friends and intimately connected. And when Jesus weeps here, even though he knows he will raise Lazarus from the dead, 
he still identifies with the pain and the suffering of the death of a brother and the death of a friend. And in his weeping, what Jesus is expressing is his great love for Lazarus. Now, Jesus responds differently to both sisters because they're different people. They have different personalities. And yet, there is one thing that they share in common. They both say the same thing to Jesus when they see him. Both of them say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Again, Walter Storff went through this when his son died. It's the if onlys. He would say, if only it had rained that day, then my son wouldn't have climbed that mountain. If only there were more warnings about the dangers of climbing this particular mountain alone, then maybe my son would have brought a friend and wouldn't have died. Many of us are saying it in this pandemic too. If only our leaders took the reports of the virus in China more seriously and prepared better, then we wouldn't be in this mess. If only people had invested more money into coronavirus research when everybody in the past was warning us that a pandemic was inevitable, then maybe we would have a vaccine now. That's probably what drives or part of what drives movies about time travel, right? Movies like Back to the Future and even Avengers Endgame. If only we could go back in time, then we could make the present reality so much better. But that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't go back in time to change the if onlys. Rather, what he does is he brings the power of the future to the present and he raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, one scholar, uh, Tom Wright, he says it like this. He says the new creation with, it in the, with and with it the resurrection has come forward from the end of time into the middle of time. Jesus has not just come, as we sometimes say or sing, from heaven to earth. It is equally true to say that he has come from God's future into the present, into the mess and muddle of the world we know. And so you see, with the power of the age that is to come, Jesus goes to Lazarus's tomb and cries out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out with his hands and his feet bound with linen strips. Now that's a story. But as I said before, I want us to experience this story. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Mary and Martha or even Lazarus in this moment. You just had a powerful encounter with death. Death took away Lazarus' dignity. It says he died of an illness. So I imagine he probably had all sorts of nasty symptoms, maybe fever, maybe chills, maybe even vomiting or diarrhea. Maybe Mary and Martha witnessed his painful groans as he laid down and his lack of strength. And perhaps when Lazarus breathed, breathed his last breath, all he could helplessly do is wait for death to come and to take him. And for Mary and Martha, when Lazarus died, maybe they were in shock. As the shock started to settle in, maybe they started to have all kinds of thoughts. Thoughts like this. You know, I hope Lazarus knew how much we loved him. Uh, I wish I didn't yell at him a few weeks ago for something so trivial. I wish I told him how much I appreciated him. I'm going to miss seeing him uh, during holidays, especially Passover, when he would recline voice. And as they begin to rec recollect their memories of their brother, now they begin to reimagine a future where he's no longer there. 
and no longer a part of their lives. Now, imagine in the midst of processing his death, Jesus does the most amazing thing ever. He raises Lazarus from the dead, and Lazarus is now back. Now they can hug him again. Now they can talk to him again. Now they can see him at Passover again. Now they can even joke around with him again. They can seek his advice again. They can tell him they love him again. They can no longer feel his absence. They no longer remember his painful last moments where his dignity was stripped away from him by this great enemy, death. The painful, grim future that they imagined is no longer their future. But now they can envision a different kind of future with Lazarus in it. What relief there would be if you were them. What joy there would be. What gratitude there would be if you were them. Can you imagine how they would have all felt when Lazarus came back to life from the dead and now had this second chance at life? Now, of course, it's uh, miraculous and it's not something that we experience every day or even experience often. And I think the only thing that maybe comes close to an experience like that is if you expected someone that you love to die very soon, but then you're suddenly pleasantly surprised when this person makes a complete recovery. And there's plenty of stories like that. It feels as if you've been given another chance at life. You were supposed to die, but miraculously you get this second chance and it kind of feels like this mini resurrection. But even then, whatever they would have felt is still only a tiny, tiny taste of what you and I will feel when we are raised to new life. You see, friends, because as remarkable as Lazarus's story is, it's just a small taste. You know why? Because Lazarus, even though he was raised, he was eventually going to die again. You know, after this passage, actually, you, you start to read about a plot to kill Lazarus because so many Jews started believing in Jesus on account of his resurrection, and so they wanted to get rid of Lazarus. And so even though Lazarus was raised, it was still somewhat temporary. So now imagine the amount of joy Martha and Mary had when Lazarus is raised to life. And now multiply that joy by an infinite number. And that's what we have to look forward to in our resurrection. You know, I said before, the call to love is an invitation to suffer. And that's true even in this story. Jesus loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And so what he does is he raises Lazarus from the dead. But in John's gospel, this resurrection, this event actually sets into motion a plot to kill Jesus that would ultimately lead to Jesus's own death upon a cross. You see, for Jesus, loving Lazarus meant death on a cross. But that's not where the story would end. Because on the third day, Jesus would resurrect from the dead. He would conquer sin and death. In 1 Corinthians 15, what Paul would say is Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And what that means is this. You know, my parents, they grow grapes in their backyard. And in these grapes, you, you start to see like these tiny fruit buds start to grow. And basically, they are a sign that a harvest of grapes are coming. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first fruits, and we are now a part of the harvest that is to come 
where we will all be raised with him. And as amazing as Lazarus' resurrection is here, the one that awaits us is actually infinitely better. You see, death, it may have a role in shaping our identity here on earth. During our lifetimes, we may be characterized by sickness and loss and grief, but that won't be our identity forever because there is a final resurrection that is to come where there will be no more sickness, no more loss, no more grief. There will be no more regrets, no more tears, no more pain, no more fear, no more virus, no more death. Unless we think that the resurrection is simply an absence of bad things, know that it is going to be the fullness and the presence of amazing things. It is going to be the presence of life and joy and security and peace and fullness. It is the presence of all God's children raised from death to life, delighting in the very presence of God's shining face over us in the new Jerusalem. And can you imagine it? You know, it's, I think it's hard to imagine it because it is so glorious and there's probably no analogy to it. I think perhaps the next best thing we can do is think about something smaller. Think about what it would have been like to be Mary or Martha or even Lazarus and to experience that tiny mini resurrection. But then to know in our hearts that when Jesus returned and because Jesus himself was resurrected, raised from the dead, conquered sin and death, the resurrection that you and I have will be infinitely better. And that is the hope we cling to. And that is the hope we long forward, we look forward to. That is a hope that we long for deep within our hearts. And I pray that that is the hope that shapes our imagination as we anticipate that day when we're raised with Christ. Happy Easter, everybody. Let's pray.